kommen und die sich überall zu Hause fühlen. Hitler didn't have to set foot out of Germany for his malign plans to be felt beyond the Reich's borders, even here in Los Angeles. Through the depths of the Depression right into World War II, Nazi Germany was ginning up support in Southern California, where its agents plotted everything from attacks on National Guard armories to murdering Hollywood's Jewish moguls and filmmakers. USC history professor Stephen J. Ross has unearthed the story of sunshine Nazism from picnic rallies in the La Crescenta Park to a compound planned for Pacific Palisades as Hitler's White House on the Pacific. His book, Hitler in Los Angeles, How Jews Foiled Nazi Plots Against Hollywood and America, is part thriller and all chiller about how close the California Reich came to succeeding. Why was L.A., way out here on the West Coast, so important to the Nazis in the 1930s? Because everyone sees New York as the kind of center of Jewish activity, and so did the Nazis. But they also understood that the mayor of New York, Fiorello LaGuardia, uh, was a very vehement anti-Nazi. As many people may not know, he was half Jewish. And he had the ports of New York, which the Nazis referred to as Jew York, very closely guarded. In L.A., however, we had a long history of uh, anti-Semitism, racism, Ku Klux Klan activities, and right-wing demagogues. And uh, the port was never monitored. And so the Nazis were able to send their ships to L.A., and on every ship, there was always a Gestapo officer. And when they would dock at L.A., the uh, head of the Bund here would go down to the docks and receive money, propaganda, and secret orders from Germany. The hero of your story is a man named Leon Lewis. He was a World War I vet. He was a co-founder of the Anti-Defamation League. Who was he, and how did he fall into this work? He had uh, moved to L.A. around 1931 for health reasons, and Hitler becomes uh, Chancellor Reich Chancellor of Germany in January 1933. And this idea that Jews didn't do anything is totally wrong. And what I discovered is Jews did a lot, and for months they were debating between the American Jewish Congress and the American Jewish Committee. Would we be more effective getting in Hitler's face? The uh, other side of the debate argued that if you got in Hitler's face, it would only force him to double down, that he was never going to back down, and he would increase the persecution of Jews Well, that debate kept going on, back and forth, back and forth. But in the meantime, in late July 1933, Nazis hold their first uh, public meeting in Los Angeles, and they're dressed in brown shirts, swastika, and giving the Hitler salute, and openly saying, we are here as Hitler's advocates to America. And at that point, Leon Lewis said, enough's enough. And as a World War I veteran, he went right down on Figueroa, uh, what's now called Bob Hope, Patriotic Hall. Patriotic Hall, yes. And as a veteran, he went and he recruited four fellow vets who were all members of the disabled American veterans of World War II. World War I, excuse me. Three Christians, one Jew, and their wives. And they agreed to go undercover and join every Nazi and fascist group in L.A. and report back to Leon Lewis. And that started the beginning of a spy operation. 
the official New York was on alert. That wasn't necessarily the case in Southern California, as Leon Lewis found out when he tried to go to police, when he tried to go to the sheriff's department and said, look what's going on here. Exactly. Uh, What Lewis discovered, it was the opposite of New York. Not only were the police unconcerned, but they were sympathetic to the Nazi and silver shirts who were the American fascists. I have records of Leon Lewis going in to talk to the police chief here, Jim Two Guns Davis, and telling him, uh, look, I'm not just some amateur. I was actually a captain. I did some intelligence in the Army. I have these veterans with me. And we have uncovered a plot to seize the armories here and where all the ammunition is and weapons. We know they are actively buying guns in San Diego, and they are planning to take over the city government and to take over the armory. And he brought all of this to Police Chief Davis, and Davis cut him off two minutes into uh, Lewis's spiel and said, stop, Hitler is only doing what he had to do to save Germany. And in fact, Hitler was right, and that the real problem aren't the Nazis and fascists walking the streets of L.A. The real problem is in Boyle Heights, where all those communists are. And what Which he didn't, was the Jewish neighborhood Yes, what he time. didn't say, but it was clear, is as far as Police Chief Davis was concerned, every communist was a Jew, and every Jew was a communist. We... The German-American Bund organized as American citizens with American ideals and determined to protest ourselves, our homes, our wives and children against the slimy conspirators and the parasite hand of Jewish communism in our schools, our universities, our very homes. Who were these people? Some of them were actual Nazis. Some of them were disaffected soldiers from the First World War. What drew people in Southern California to this movement, and what did they expect of it? Almost all of them were uh, German emigres who had come over. Many of them had actually fought with the brown shirts. They were Hitler's hardcore followers, and they believed uh, in the rise of the Reich with Hitler at their command. So the Nazis in L.A. followed the same strategy that Hitler had used in the 1920s, recruiting brown shirts, which is, I want to recruit a group of military veterans, men who are already trained in killing, who knew how to use arms, and men who wouldn't fold under pressure. And the idea was that if I could get these people into the Bund, the Friends of New Germany, they in turn could train other Americans who would join their cause. There were a number of groups that sympathized with or were on the fringes of all of this pro-Hitler movement. What kind of numbers are we talking about altogether in Southern California? Uh, In my book, I have a two-page map of Nazi and fascist L.A. in the 1930s and 40s. And we put in a Morgan David for Leon Lewis's uh, Spy Centro. But then for the Nazis, we had swastikas, and for the fascists, silver shirts and their allies, we had a F sign, like a serrated F. When you look at the map, you see in the middle a Mogandavid totally surrounded in an ocean of Nazis and fascists. From the summer of 1933 till, till the war, every month, at least every month, and in many cases every week, Some group and some speaker was calling for death to Jews. In the title, you refer to plots, plural. Over the course of a dozen years, there was a plot to kidnap and hang some 20 men, Jews, politicians, including Busby Berkeley and the district attorney, 
someone else wanted to drive through Boyle Heights and shoot Jews, hoping to inspire others to do the same. There was a fake fumigation company that wanted to kill Jewish families with poison gas, a plot that would have killed Charlie Chaplin and Jimmy Cagney and Walter Winchell. The ambition of these was extraordinary, and, and it would have been a shock heard around the world. More, more than just a shock heard around the world. If you hung all these Hollywood figures... And in one case, they would hang them, and then just to show their contempt for the Jews and Jew lovers, they were going to machine gun them while they were dangling from a rope. By killing Hollywood Jews and movie stars who were known to be very friendly to Jews, the idea was when you kill these people, this news is going to go throughout the world, and it's going to uh, incite pogroms throughout America. And basically, it would be death to Jews throughout America. Were these fanciful plots, or did they actually have plans laid, personnel? Did they get very far? And if not, why not? Some of them, like driving through Boyle Heights with machine guns, that I think was more talk than not. But the two hanging plots, I think, were very real. And the reason they didn't happen is because Leon Lewis had an agent, one of his undercover agents, had gone in and penetrated to the highest level. He was a right-hand man in both these cases to the leading plotters. Then the Buddha yells, I gotta have more shells. Be higher, For him we make more shells. If one little shell should blow him right to Be higher, higher, And wouldn't that be swell? What did Hollywood, with all of its power, how did it expend its energy when it came to this threat? Because you write about uh, Mr. Lewis meeting with Irving Thalberg and Rabbi Magnin, very powerful figures, one in Hollywood, one in Jewish Los Angeles. Well, Leon Lewis starts a spy operation at the very beginning of August 1933. He never expects he's going to be a spy master, but when he realizes that nobody in authority is following them, he just, he feels he has to keep at it, and he does. And he'll do it until the end of World War II because no one else is willing to step in. And so he needed some money because he was paying the spies their expenses, and in a few cases, because they were poverty-stricken veterans, he gave them a very small stipend. And so that's why he went to Thalberg, and Magnin knew that either he had to step up and do it full-time or these Nazis were going to succeed. And so they called together a secret meeting of 40 of the most powerful figures in Hollywood at Hillcrest Country Club. And they walk into a private dining room, not knowing why the hell they've been called. And in front of every seat are copies of the Silver Legion, which is the American fascist magazine, with articles about the Jews in Hollywood and how they're seducing women and they're perverting America. And then he proceeds to tell them two things, that, in fact, Nazis have penetrated your studios. None of you are paying attention to your below-the-line employees, and that they have been firing Jews for the last nine months, and that in some studios, including yours, Louis B. Mayer, there are almost no Jews at all working in craftsman positions. And then he tells them information about uh, German general counsel George Gisling, who'd been sent by Goebbels to stop Hollywood from making any film attacking or mocking Hitler. And originally, uh, Gisling comes over in June 1933 and immediately goes both to Columbia Pictures and to uh, Warner Brothers and demands changes 
And the reason the moguls agree, uh, Colombia is the first one to agree, is because the studios have more theaters in Germany than anywhere else on the continent. And uh, they didn't want to lose that market. They thought Hitler would be out of office in a short time, so they'd play along. But what happens is in 1934, July 1934, they create the Production Code Administration. But part of the code stipulates that no Hollywood studio can make a movie that defames, mocks, or denigrates any foreign country or their leader. And if you don't agree to that, you will not get a Production Code Administration seal of approval. You cite some examples. There's a film called Three Comrades, which because of these these pressures, went from a movie with political content to a romance. Now that the war is over, I drink to the life I never had a chance to live. From the cradle to the front lines, that's me. I'm going to spill champagne from Hamburg to Munich and fall in love with every girl I meet. I drink to those who think of home tonight. I drink to the peace they hope to find at home, now that peace has come to them at war. The life of Emile Zola, who was the defender of Alfred Dreyfus, the word Jew was never spoken in this movie. The name of the people of France. Alfred Dreyfus is condemned to deportation for life. The court martial also orders that prior to this sentence being carried out, said Captain Dreyfus shall be paraded before the garrison of Paris, there publicly degraded and dismissed from the service. And it was finally with the film Confessions of a Nazi Spy that you actually had some criticism of what was going on in Germany. I am a Nazi spy. I am one of thousands stationed in every part of the United States to steal the secrets of your national defense. There are spies stationed in all of the Navy Yards in Brooklyn, Philadelphia, Newport News. There are Nazi agents in the aeroplane and munition factories at Bristol, Buffalo, Seattle, Boston. Nazi boons meeting all over the nation, openly training men for street fights, teaching them how to use guns and bayonets. It's a new kind of war, but it's still war. The reason they got that, it was based upon a true uh, story. The FBI broke a spy ring in 1938, and Warner Brothers sent out one of their screenwriters to cover the trial in the fall of 1938. And they came in with a guilty verdict by the end of the year. And by January, Warner Brothers had submitted a script, the production code, and they opened it in April 1939 with intense security because the Nazis had promised that they would stop this. Imagine there were uh, cops with machine guns on the roof. There were cops with uh, loaded weapons outside. As Germany's actions became more aggressive, how did this affect Leon Lewis' work in Southern California? By around 1938, after Kristallnacht, he really picks everything up. That's the evening that, uh, the night of the broken glass, basically when uh, there was a rampage in uh, Austria, parts of Germany, of just killing Jews and then sending off thousands of Jews to camps. And at that point, it became very clear that Hitler had war in mind And at that point, Leon Lewis recruited even more spies. Also, by the beginning of 1939, they began putting out uh, what they called the News Research Newsletter, which which took some of the spy reports, removed names, and they began talking about some of the plotting that was going on. And people began to take their work seriously. People began to notice. What became of Leon Lewis, who seemed like such an unsung hero? He was an unsung hero, and uh, Leon Lewis stayed on for a little bit running the Community Relations Committee, and then 
He went back to doing his law work uh, and also dedicated himself to Tikkun Olum, uh, whole, you know, making the world whole, and then had a heart attack on the Pacific Coast Highway and died in, I believe it was around 1954. Still a young, relatively young man. The American sense has been often, to use the Sinclair Lewis title, it can't happen here. <laughs> well, I would say it can happen here, it did happen here. It just didn't happen as bad as it could have because there were citizens around the country and there are stories like this elsewhere. There were other Leon Lewises who believed vigilance was the word. And what I found so interesting about the story is all but one of his spies were Christian. And they knew they were working for a Jew. But Lewis never framed it as a Jewish operation. He framed it as an American operation. Put him there, boy. We'll show these fascists what a couple of hillbillies can do. Stephen Ross, thank you for your book. Thank you, Pat. Pat Morrison Asks is produced for the Los Angeles Times by Pat Morrison. It's engineered by Tim French and Todd G. Levin and edited by Levin. The audio of Hitler's speech, the horse vessel song, and comments of German-American Bund leader Fritz Kuhn at Madison Square Garden in 1939 are from YouTube. The film Three Comrades was made by MGM, and Warner Brothers produced The Life of Emile Zola and Confessions of a Nazi Spy. Donald Duck was in the Fuhrer's face for Walt Disney, and Woody Guthrie sang All You Fascists Bound to Lose via BMG Songs, copyright Woody Guthrie Publications. Subscribe to Pat Morrison Asks and never miss a podcast. I am Pat Morrison. Woo!